Job 15. You know, the old adage goes this way. What goes in will come out. The idea is this. You will receive out of something a byproduct of what you put into it. If I put gasoline into my automobile, I can expect that an output of that gasoline is combustion. Now, if I were to take that same automobile and pour water into the gasoline tank, I would expect very different output because it's a different compound that I'm putting in. I'm going to get something very different out. Very little is actually going to come out. What goes in will come out. We know this. Such is true of life, just like it is of automobiles. What you put into your life is what you will receive out of your life. Now, as we step into the second round today of debate, we've gone through the entire first round. Each one of the three comforters of Job has now spoken, and Job has replied to each one of them. Job 15 begins round two. We have gone around the horn, and we're back at Eliphaz. As we do so, things are going to be fairly familiar to us. In some respects, as we have already seen, each man has a similar argument. More so, each man's argument is his own argument. And so as we go around the horn again, we're going to see consistency, similarities between a man's argument the first time and what he is saying the second time. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not still plenty to learn. As a matter of fact, I believe in many ways it's just the opposite. Because we are, we are seeing that similar things, it frees me up to be able to focus in on various parts of their arguments and touch on them a little bit deeper. So here's what I'm going to do today. If you have an outline, you'll notice it's a little bit different than usual. I don't have a summary statement at the top. And uh, there's just two points spaced a little bit differently. What I'm going to do is I'm first going to simply summarize the three chapters. I'm going to teach through them. As you would expect, this part is going to be somewhat academic. I'm going to tell you what the scriptures are saying. I'm going to tell you what each man is saying, and we're going to, to try to understand the content. And then I'm going to focus in a little bit, and I'm going to use that opportunity to apply something a bit more broad to our hearts, and that will be our, our second point on your outline as we seek to apply those truths and those concepts this morning. We'll draw out some of um, that context. And so let's begin by walking through these three chapters together and then we'll seek to apply it. Begin in chapter 15. Now, following the input of each of Job's three companions, round two begins with Eliphaz taking another opportunity to speak. We have not heard from Eliphaz since chapters 4 and 5. So it's been a long time in our study since we have heard from the man Eliphaz. But I would like to remind you what his argument said last time. I'd like to remind you what he said because this is the same man. Now, if you were in a debate, I won't say an argument, but if you were in a debate with somebody and you and he had a good conversation last time and he calls you up and he says, hey, I want to debate with you more about this topic, so why don't we meet it at the local coffee shop and let's talk about this. Now, you are not going to say, oh, okay, and, and then just take everything that he told you last time and throw it out the window and jump into the conversation as if nothing ever happened, are you? You're going to go back to that conversation. You're going to say, okay, what were his main points? What, were his, what, what was he saying? Why, why did he say that? What were my refutations? What were my points? 
What was the part that he hung me up on? How can I respond to it this time? And you get context before you go into a conversation so that you know what you're dealing with. Well, we need to do that in Job. We need to understand what Eliphaz said last time as he starts speaking again because these are a bunch of old guys. These are a bunch of old guys talking back and forth. Most likely, if you've ever been in a conversation where people are going back and forth, when you stop talking and they start talking, what are you doing? You're just waiting until the moment where you can pick up your conversation again. You're waiting for that point where you can start saying what you were saying before and continue. Sure, he's going re- to say his things, but you're going you're to pick up where you left off. And Eliphaz does that. And each one of these men is going to do that to some degree or another. They're going to pick up their argument where they left off. So let's remember Eliphaz's argument. He gave five claims, as I presented it last time, in chapters 4 and 5 of Job. He said, Job, you talk the talk, but you can't walk the walk. You have comforted others in their affliction, but now the difficulties come to you, and you refuse to admit that you're a sinner. Then he said, Job, you're reaping what you sow. You planted iniquity, and now you're reaping iniquity. So you must have planted iniquity because you're reaping iniquity. We see what you're reaping, so we know what you planted, what you sowed. Then he said, he he gave the witness of the unknown spirit. Do you remember that? He said that he had a dream, and in this dream there was a spirit that he couldn't discern, and the spirit talked to him and said some things to him. And that was the third point. He gave the witness of the unknown spirit. Then he said, he told Job that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. That, that trouble just, it, man is born unto it. That, that, um, that it is a part of mankind. And of course, he was trying to relay that to sin. And we recognize the truth of his statement, but the improper foundation as with all of these. And then finally, he, he um, encouraged Job to appreciate his chastening. Job, you're being chastened by God. Appreciate it. Be thankful for it. Learn the lessons so that God can restore you. And of course, we we drew out the good points. We chewed on the meat. We spit out the bones. But that was Eliphaz's argument last time. Hopefully that will spur your memory a little bit. Perhaps this week as you're reading through Job for next week and you're reading through those chapters as you find them in your calendar, you can also read through um, the, the comments from the person that's speaking, his previous comments. You can jump back to uh, Job chapters 6 and 7 and um, look at what Bildad had to say as well so that you can get a good context in that regard going into the next week also. But um, let's continue where we are today. So these five claims. We will find throughout chapter 15 that these five claims will be very helpful to remember as Eliphaz does pick up where he left off. So chapter 15. Eliphaz begins with the typical condemnation of Job in verses 1 through 13. In verse 2, he calls Job a wise man who is uttering empty knowledge. Job, you've got some wisdom, but the, the wisdom and the knowledge that you have, the things that you're saying, they're empty, they're worthless, they're useless. In verse 3, he calls Job's talk unprofitable. There is no profit in what you're saying, Job. You're saying things, you think that they're good, but there's no profit in it. It's, it's worthless, it's empty. Then he says in verse 4, and this is very important. Notice what it says in verse 4. Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. He accuses Job of casting off any fear of God and refusing to call upon God in repentance and therefore forsaking his own mercy. 
We'll come back to this idea in Job's response in the next chapter. But Eliphaz is saying, you don't fear God. You're not praying in repentance to God. Therefore, you are forsaking your own mercy. God is offering you mercy and you're pushing his hand away. That's what, that, is, that is Eliphaz's charge here. Verses 5 and 6, Eliphaz claims that Job's words reveal iniquity, which, while they cannot pinpoint it, is present somewhere. Look at verse 5 and 6. For the, thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. Your own lips are, are, are condemning you. You're, you are calling yourself innocent. There's no way you can be innocent. We don't know where the sin is, but it's got to be somewhere. And then in verses 8 through 13, Eliphaz asks the same question that they've all been asking. Do you think you're the only one with knowledge, Job? Do you have some special audience with God? We know too. We're right, you're wrong. And of course, we know Job is going to respond, do you think you're the only one with knowledge, men? I know too. I'm right, you're wrong. And so we have this going back and forth. Can you see some of the craziness of the argument at this point? Now, I don't want to make light of Job's suffering. We've talked about Job's suffering. We know how difficult his suffering is. But we realize that even though the events of Job took place a good 4,000 years ago, the bickering of old men really hasn't changed much, has it? It's just a bunch of old men sitting in a circle, telling each other how little they each know, each man standing upon his own experience to push his personal opinion in the current debate. They're full of personal insults to each other, insulting their logic, insulting their intelligence, and they're full of personal pride in their own knowledge. They have an, a complete unwillingness to yield to the position of any other. And that's really what we're looking at here. We're looking at a group of old men and they're saying, no, you're an imbecile. This is what's right. And he's saying, no, 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 you're foolish. This is what's right. I'm right, you're wrong. No, 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 I'm right, you're wrong. And they're going back and forth bickering like old men can sometimes do. And that's what we're seeing here. That's really the picture that I have as I read these chapters. However, the content is in fact quite serious. Verses 14 through 19 become the foundation for the rest of Eliphaz's argument. Let's read it together. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water? I will show thee, hear me, and that which I have seen I will declare. Which wise men have told from their fathers and have not hid it? unto whom alone the earth was given, and no stranger passed among them. Does that argument sound familiar? Let me read to you particularly verse 15 again. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints, yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Please turn with me back to Job chapter 4. Keep your finger here. We'll be back to Job 15 in just a moment. In Job 4, verse 18 and 19... I already told you that Job four and uh, excuse me, Job three and four was Eliphaz speaking, or four and five. Pardon me, Job four and five is Eliphaz speaking, and look what Eliphaz says in Job four verse eighteen. Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust which are crushed before the moth. Now, if you turn back to Job 15, let me read to you verse 15 and 16 again. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints, yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man 
which drinketh iniquity like water. Eliphaz is just picking up where he left off. Now, his testimony in, in Job chapter 4, that was the teaching of the unknown spirit that we just read. This is the thing that the unknown spirit said to him. And he repeated it in Job 4. Now he's repeating it again in Job 15, the testimony of the un, un, uh, known spirit. But let me just reiterate. Eliphaz is repeating his argument. And we need to put those pieces together. We need to recognize that because that's going to give us an understanding of what he's saying here. Let's look at the content of his teaching in verses 20 through 35. The wicked man travaileth with pain all his days, and the, number, and the number of years is hidden to the oppressor. A dreadful sound is in his ears. In prosperity the destroyer shall come upon him. He believeth not that he shall return out of darkness, and he is waited for of the sword. He wandereth abroad for, his, for bread, saying, Where is it? He knoweth that the day of darkness is ready at, at his hand. Trouble and anguish shall make him afraid. They shall prevail against him as a king ready to the battle. For he stretcheth out his hand against God and strengtheneth himself against the Almighty. He runneth upon him, even upon his neck, upon the thick bosses of his bucklers, because he covereth his face with his fatness and maketh collops of fat on his flanks. That's rolls. And he dwelleth in desolate cities and in houses which no man inhabiteth, which are ready to become heaps. And he continues. As I was meditating upon this argument and the fact that uh, we see these similar arguments all throughout, I've been meditating on them. In fact, for months now, since the arguments have been very similar, they each strongly hold, we know, to the false claim that bad things happen to bad people and that anyone who is suffering is an open sinner before God. The problem that we see here then, I mean, notice what he says in, in chapter 15, verse 20. The wicked man travaileth with pain all his days. And the number of years is hidden to the oppressor. God, can you see? I, think, about, think about life. Think about wicked men that you are familiar with. Be it through the media or whatever the case may be. Openly wicked men. And here Eliphaz says that they, they travail in pain all their days. Their days are filled with nothing but pain and anguish. That doesn't ring true, does it? Now, we can say that their spirits are, are, uh, they are separated from God and therefore there is that element of, of separation and discontentment and those things. But there are many wicked people who are very happy materially in this life. And so as we think about this, this is what I can sometimes call, or I like to call the blessings of morality that are touching this argument. A people such as Job and his friends who operate under a framework of biblical morality, even apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, are a people who will receive many blessings as the natural consequence of their moral decisions. A moral society is a society in which the poor are fed and clothed. A moral society is a society in which honesty and integrity compel business and honesty and integrity compel politics. A moral society is a society in which laws are just and punishment is humane. And what I believe we're looking at here is the side effects in this argument of a moral 
society. I, I would call them the blessings of a moral society. In such a society where men are reaping the blessings of morality, it is very easy to begin to see problems as a natural consequence of immorality. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, let me give you an example. The United States of America. The United States of America was founded upon biblical morality. You can listen to all the historical revisionists you want, but they're wrong. It was founded upon a foundation of biblical morality. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in this country was a born-again believer, by any means. If you've ever read anything by Thomas Jefferson, you would know that Thomas Jefferson was not a born-again believer under any circumstances. But he was a man who lived his life under the auspices of biblical morality. And there were tremendous blessings that were heaped upon the nation because the government and businesses and societies and towns and churches operated under the umbrella of biblical morality. But in a society such as that, there can be a natural side effect of a society that has biblical morality in its foundations whereby people begin to get skewed about what it means when bad things physically are happening to people. And so in a society where biblical morality is the standard, when bad things happen to people, people immediately assume, as Job's companions did, that it is a result of sin in someone's life. And this is a side effect of biblical morality as it roots itself in a people group. Such has been the case throughout history with every nation who has taken on the tenets of biblical morality. Israel was this way. To a lesser extent, Rome in the heyday of Christianity before the Catholic Church uh, became the entity of, of apostasy. It, it, to, to a lesser degree, Rome was that way. The United States of America was this way. England was this way for many years. And it's good when a society is founded upon the biblical principles of morality. But one of the things that we see is this blind spot where we begin to connect physical suffering with personal sin. And it is a blind spot, and that's what Job is attempting to teach us. We must be cautious in our own lives, lest we come to regard the same error, be it in our community here as a church or in our nation and lives. So chapter 15, Eliphaz's argument all centered around, again, Job's sin. Chapters 16 and 17 are Job's response, both to his comforters as well as to God. In chapter 16, Job responds to Eliphaz. He turns to his friends in verses 1 through 8, and he again calls the men miserable comforters. Here we go. We're back into our template. They say, Job, you're blowing hot air. Job says, you're all miserable comforters. They say, Job, you have no idea what you're talking about. Job says, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. And here we are in the template again. He's openly pronouncing that they are wronging him by their speech, which we will find out later they in fact are. And that's verses 1 through 8. He then turns to his circumstances. That was to his friends. Verses 1 through 8, he's regarding his friends and their terrible, terrible comfort. In verses 9 through 16, he then turns to his circumstances. And he declares that God has again attacked him without provocation. Notice Job is still not charging God foolishly, but God is allowing Job to go through this trial, a trial without a sinful cause, 
and Job is declaring his confusion and declaring that this is happening without cause. Finally, as we read this morning in our, in our scripture reading, Job turns to God, beginning in verse 17, and remembers that regardless of the slanders, regardless of the tribulations, his prayers are pure before God and his complaint is just. So that's how I would break up verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. He's regarding his friends or comforters. Chapters, uh, verses 9 through 16, he talks about his circumstances. And then verses 17 through 22, he talks about God and God's, his disposition before God. That brings us to chapter 17. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 17 are addressed to God specifically. Job speaks confidently to God, believing that he is in the right and yet pleading still for some confirmation. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. Upright men shall be astonied, that means astonished, at this. And the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. The righteous also shall hold on his way. And he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. Job declares that the situation that he is in will amaze, absolutely amaze, upright men. Why would that be? Because his circumstances reveal that indeed the upright, indeed those that are serving God faithfully, do still suffer, just as any other man suffers. And so he says men will be astonished by this fact as upright man, men consider the case of Job. Verses 10 through 16 are addressed again to Job's companions. He scolds them for their foolishness. He then declares that he's simply waiting for death to come. He's waiting for his rest to come in death. And that finishes Job chapter 17 as he turns back to his comforters. Now, we have just looked at three more chapters of old men talking back and forth about what their experiences have taught them in life and about life in general. But throughout their argument, there's something that I would like to recognize today, an application that I would like to draw out as you look at that second point. These lessons, these applications will be the basis for um, our compulsion today in our sermon. And my, my compulsion is this. Through the lessons of Job and his companions, may I encourage you to live with a grave determination in your hearts to serve God above yourself. May I encourage you to, with all the determination you can muster, serve God above serving yourself. Turn back with me to Job 15 and look at verse 31. In his argument, Eliphaz says this, and it's very accurate. Let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, for vanity shall be his recompense. Let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, for vanity shall be his recompense. Now we would expect this comment from Eliphaz. Why? Because Eliphaz was the one that talked to Job about reaping and sowing. Eliphaz seems to really understand the sowing and reaping principle and he wants this sowing and reaping principle to be reflected in the teaching of Job. But that being said, now he's not wrong here. We know his foundation is wrong. 
Eliphaz is not wrong though. The word vanity in verse 31 is literally translated from the Hebrew emptiness. It's a good translation. Vain means empty, means worthless. It implies that actions have no value. But the question is, as Eliphaz says here, let him, let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, emptiness, for emptiness, vanity, shall be his recompense. Whose definition of vanity? Whose value? We look at something and we say that has no value. It is vain. It is empty. Well, by what standard does it have no value? And so we need to get a little bit of context here. And we know that Eliphaz, in context, is speaking about sin. He is speaking about a lifestyle that is contrary to the word of God. And so as we consider this concept, there are interrelated principles that I would like us to recognize. Sin is the recompense of sin. Vanity is the recompense of vanity. And righteousness is the recompense of righteousness. Spiritual value has a very clear definition in Scripture. That which is of value in the eyes of God and that which is of no value in the eyes of God. And I gave you three different categories this morning because there are some things that are not inherently sinful that can be empty. And in emptiness, they can become then worthless, useless, and possibly sinful in their vanity. But spiritual value has a very clear definition. And allow me, if you would please for a moment, to define spiritual value with New Testament scriptures. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. As we think about that which is sinful, that which is empty, and that which is right, we have just heard the definition of that which is right in Philippians 4.8. Let me give you more. Titus 2, verses 1-10. through 10. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors, becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. May I continue to define that which is good and right according to Scripture through Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. We could also add Second Peter 1, 5-10 to the list as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, though I did not. You can certainly put it in your notes or in your Bible if you 
are noting these things in your Bible. And so these are those things that the scriptures say have value in God's eyes. Things which conform themselves to his character or are in line with his will and his purposes for us. And this is why Paul taught in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. He would say in Galatians 6, 9, And be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The principle is this. It's the principle we started out in. It's the principle Eliphaz teaches in verse 31. What you put into your life is what is going to come out of your life. All of those virtues I just read, those good things to think upon, the sound doctrine that we're supposed to live and speak of in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit that's exhibiting itself in our lives, the virtues that we're supposed to build upon that fruit, if you are placing those things into your life, that is what is going to come out of your life. If you are placing the opposite, if you are putting emptiness, time-wasting, worthless things into your life, if your week is filled with things that have no profit, well then expect no spiritual profit coming out of your life. Don't expect to become a great disciple of Christ if you're only serving Him on Sunday morning between 10 and 11.30. Don't expect to become a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're only serving Him when you are purposed to look into your Bible. Our thoughts, our actions, everything that we put into our life is what we are reaping out of our life. Let me illustrate the principle. It really doesn't need a lot of illustration, but let me do it anyway. If you want to be physically healthy, what must you do? You must put into your life those understood practices that result in health. Healthy food, exercise, and balance. You can't get out of your body what you don't put into your body. I am not going to be a healthy person if I sit on the couch eating potato chips all day, never exercise, only eat junk food, I cannot expect, people always say, well, you know, the, the, the wonder pill. There's no wonder pill. Because you can't get out of your body what you don't put into your body. Let's think of more examples. If you want to be good at a sport, I mean really good. There are some people that are naturally talented in various areas. But if you want to be really good at a sport, what must you do? You must put into your life those practices that result in improvement. I am not just going to sit on the couch and watch a football game and then become a star football player. If I want to be a good football player, I need to put the time and the effort and the repetition into becoming a football player. If you want to be good at an instrument, what must you do? You must put into your life those practices that result in a better performance. You can't just sit around all day staring at your instrument and expect that the next time you pick it up, you're going to be better than the last time you picked it up. If you want to be proficient at an instrument, you have to practice. Practice, practice. What are you doing when you're practicing? You are putting into your life what you are trying to get out of your life, which is a good performance. If you want to be a godly Christian, 
what must you do? You must put into your life those practices, those virtues that result in godliness, that result in discipleship. You are not going to be a good Christian by sitting around thinking angry thoughts and thinking vain thoughts or thinking selfish thoughts or lusting or coveting. These things coming into your life is not going to produce anything righteous out of your life. You are not going to wake up one morning and find yourself to be a well-rounded, good Christian, a disciple indeed, as we'll talk about tonight from John. You're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. It's not how it works. If you want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to put into your life those things that God calls for you to put into your life. We cannot think that we can live our lives for ourselves Monday through Saturday, check in to church on Sunday, and be a good Christian. It doesn't work that way. Christianity is not about a checklist. It's not if I do this and this and this and this, then I'm good for the week and the rest of the time is my own. Our money's not that way. Our time's not that way. Nothing in a Christian's life is that way. It's not that I, it's all mine and I give to God portions of it. You don't give to God 10% of your money. You're giving back to God a portion of His money. You're not giving to God 10 o'clock to 11.30 every Sunday morning. You are giving a portion of the time that God has allowed you to borrow. You are giving back to God a portion of what He has placed in your care for your stewardship. And so we mustn't think that we can pour into our lives sin and vanity and reap righteousness because it doesn't work that way, ever. That's what Eliphaz says in chapter 15. That's what Eliphaz said in chapter 4 and 5. That's what Paul and Peter and Jesus Christ say all throughout the New Testament It's a principle of Scripture. You reap what you sow. You get out what you put in. So my question for you today, what are you feeding your spirit? What goes in during the week? What goes in from coworkers? What goes in from neighbors? What goes in from the television? What goes in from the radio? What goes in from the CD player or MP3 player? What goes in from the computer. What goes in is what comes out. You can't get something out that you're not putting in. If you're feeding the flesh, fleshly actions will be the result. No exception here. Sin is the recompense of sin. You will not bear fruit, or at least the fruit that you ought for God when sin is present in your life. But may I also say that vanity is the recompense of vanity. Our society is full of time wasters. Television is a time waster. Video games, time waster. Internet, time waster. These things in proper, in proper proportions are fine. But out of balance, they become time eaters. They're not inherently sinful, but they can be unprofitable if we're not careful. Unprofitableness going in is unprofitableness coming out. That wasted time can never come back to you. 
And so as we close, let me give you one more New Testament scripture that kind of puts everything I've said into perspective. And and many of us have heard it before over the past couple of weeks because all of the things that I've been saying have been coming up quite a bit in the past couple of weeks. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 through 13. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Paul speaking to the Corinthian believers here, he says, But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Everything we're putting into our lives is reaping some sort of reward. It's reaping a reward of righteousness, or a reward of emptiness, or a reward of sinfulness. And at the end of the day, Every single reward that is being reaped in your life is recorded in heaven in a pile of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. The wood, hay, and stubble, of course, being those things that are vain, empty, sinful. The gold, silver, and precious stones being those things that were done for God upon this earth. The fruit of righteousness in our lives. And on the day of judgment, for every man will be judged according to his works, including believers, the fire of God's judgment will try that pile. And what's going to happen to that wood, that hay, and that stubble? It's going to burn up. And the only thing left will be the pile of gold, silver, and precious stones, those things that can withstand the fire. How big will your pile be? How much of this past seven days will burn up? in emptiness, in uselessness, in waste because of what we put into our lives and what therefore is coming out of our lives. What all these men, every single man that we've heard so far, what each one had right about God and about life in general is this, that the thoughts and activities that you give your time and your energy to will become the fruit of your life. Now this evening as we finish John 8, we'll be talking about discipleship even more. I'm excited about how these sermons have come together to create a true whole. I encourage you to be here this evening. If you cannot, I encourage you to listen to the sermon online this week. Let me leave you with these questions once again. What fills your time and priorities? Is it sin? Triviality? Entertainment? Lust? Gossip? covetousness or are your times filled with scripture praise evangelism discipleship remember what goes in will come out